It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's a place here at the table. Your coats go by the door. You can kick your shoes off in that pile on the floor. I hope you wore elastic because your waistband's going to get tight. Take time. I'm Sophie. And I'm Ari. And you're listening to Having a Night, the podcast dedicated to reviving the lost art of the dinner party. Oh, what did you eat this week? Um, this week I was feeling a little chilly, and so I really wanted to make something really homey mm-hmm. and warm. And I made Julia Child's French chicken in a pot, Ooh, um, which is that? so good. But what's in it? You just take a whole chicken and you sear it in a Dutch oven mm-hmm. and use um, both sides like four minutes aside. You don't get it too brown because it's not about crispiness. Mm-hmm. It's like more of a low and slow thing. You preheat mm-hmm. your oven to 250, super low. Um, and you like scatter some aromatics around it. You put tin foil and then the top of the Dutch oven mm-hmm. to really seal it in. And I add other vegetables because I was also lazy and didn't want to be cooking multiple things at once. Totally. And then you put it in the uh, the oven for almost two hours, sometimes a little more, depending on how big the chicken wow. is. And it's just super juicy and good. And I made um, some rice to go on the side. What vegetables did you put with it? I put some fennel, celery, and carrot in. Nice. Yeah. That sounds so delicious. Yeah, you could do like a root vegetable, anything a little um, sturdy, I guess, right? Like, I was picturing, like, putting in spinach, which I guess would just get really kind of wilted and nasty. Yeah, no, I didn't put anything green in. I actually had, when I took the chicken out to warm it and then I reduced kind of the jus, Mm -hmm. I ended up taking out the bigger stalks of fennel and celery and carrot that didn't get um, cooked enough and Uh, just put them under the broiler with some olive oil, which was a... A uh, pleasant addition. That sounds so yummy. Yeah. I'm just getting so hungry. I'm getting like very sleepy hungry. I had a cheeseburger at PJ Clark's and I was in heaven. Describe it to me in detail. Their burgers don't come with fries. So it comes as just a burger on a very large plate, okay. which I would say is a problem. I almost think they should do like a salad size plate instead of like a dinner size plate because it's a bit weird. Okay. Because it's very undecorated. Yes. So it comes potato roll. Huh. Um, Seven ounce patty, tomatoes, which I felt fucked it up a little bit. Huh. You know, thinly sliced tomatoes, one piece of lettuce, which I liked. I don't like when they go crazy with the lettuce. It's like I only need one piece for a little bit of crunch. Pickles, uh, cheddar cheese. You know I'm a cheddar girl. Well, okay. It comes with American, but I ordered it with cheddar. Oh, okay. And then I just added a bunch of mayo, uh, mustard, and ketchup. Very squishy bun. Great burger to bun ratio. It was delicious. But this week we have on the incredible Fanny Singer. She is an artist. She's a writer. She cooks an incredible amount, as you will hear. 
She has a new book coming out called Always Home. It's coming out at the end of March. It sounds really wonderful. Yeah. She also has a store, an online store called Permanent Collection that has really beautiful clothing, home goods, things objects. to cook with, yeah. objects, and sort of the ethos behind it is like you only need to buy it once, which what a great thing to be, you know, to be spreading in this world of conspicuous consumption. And she's just so lovely and knowledgeable about food and Yeah, I really feel like I learned so much. She's I'm excited for you guys to hear this interview. We're here with Fanny Singer, who I haven't seen in I mean I feel like I don't even want to I know, I don't either. (laughs) Anyway, we overlapped in college. She dated a great friend of mine. She's an artist. She's a writer. She's a cook. She's a host. She has a clothing company. Would you call it a clothing company? A home goods company? We call it a design brand, <laughs> which, <laughs> sort of, which sort of uh, encompasses a lot of things for yeah. us. Yeah. Um, and she's so cool, and we're so happy to have her here. And her new book, Always Home, is coming out in yeah, yeah, the end of next month. I mean, I feel like first, obviously, tell us about Always Home, because I want to know everything about it. But then I want to know everything about everything else, too. So, (laughs) Always Home, um, God, when did it first sort of... It was right on the back of working on that book with my mom called My Pantry, Mm -hmm. which um, I illustrated with her and then also um, and sort of co-wrote with my mom. And it was was at the end of her doing the two more like anthology books called Art of Simple Food. Mm -hmm. And there were these... I have over there. So Fanny's mom is Alice Waters, who's sort of, what would you say, like the godmother of American cuisine, the that is Californian what, yeah, cuisine. There's, yeah, there are many, there are many possible monikers. Yeah. There's like mother to many also. There's wow. the matriarch of the femi penis. Um, people often call her, I guess, um, yeah, the kind of, it's, and she was the progenitor of like the farm to table movement right. in right. California. But it's kind of, you know, it's a shifting title. She's also like more than anything a kind of activist, I would say yeah. now. Totally. And humanitarian. So even though the restaurant is still so much under her um, guidance and direction, um, she does most of her work now is dedicated to the Edible Schoolyard and to these initiatives to just lead the way with a this idea of um, school-supported agriculture in California. Yeah. So um, unifying all the different, like, mayors and districts and getting them to do this idea of highly localized sustainable agriculture in schools, which is great. <clears throat> She's... On a war path. Yes. Yeah. Wow. I call wow. her the benevolent dictator. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and on the on the heel of the heels of that, um, my now agent, um, this wonderful woman named Kari, um, reached out to me and was basically like, "If you're thinking of writing your own book, like now might be a nice time because yeah. um, we'd done a bunch of like radio and a Times talk together, and so I think people were like, "Oh, she has a daughter, like a daughter who is the sentient human being, like <laughs> get her out there." <laughs> So, um, uh, yeah, and then this idea kind of started more as a cookbook and then became um, a book, more uh, more of a literary book, more of a story-based or driven, um, I won't say narrative because it's really vignettes, like there's not an overarching story in right. Always Home, but there is... Um, more, it's more about the the words and the recollections than it is about the recipes, and yeah. and I think that's actually kind of truer to who I am anyway. I'm a writer, and not really 
a cook, not in a professional sense. So did you identify, because you studied, you studied art in undergrad, you were at Oxford, Cambridge? I was at Cambridge. At Cambridge. But my mom art. often said Oxford. <laughs> Oxbridge, you know. There you go. Get away with it there. about it. But, um, but so, okay, so you were at Cambridge studying art. Did you identify as a writer through all of that time? Or was this kind of a new thing where you were like, oh my God, here I am suddenly writing and I'm totally capable and it doesn't feel foreign to me? I'm sort of suspicious of anyone who feels like a native writer. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually something that for most people, and of course there are those virtuosic people who just, for whom it will always be their most instinctive craft. But for me, it was not. It was something that, I mean, I studied art and always liked to write, but I wouldn't say I was, you know, a great writer by any stretch. And then it was really the just plugging away at it through a PhD at Cambridge, Mm -hmm. um, which was an art history PhD, but in which, of course, there was like doing so much reading and writing um, that I began to get a sense of like what my voice might be. But then I was in England and I was reading a lot of, you know, historical texts and my master's was on um, these etchings by John Constable. So I was just mired in the 19th century. And there was some concern as I started to actually get into drafts of Always Home where I was like, do I sound like a <laughs> like mid nineteenth century <laughs> British male? Like I was like, this is totally. like the Earth has bequeathed. Yeah, there, is, oh, there, were, there were some risks there that I felt like I was like I dabbled into some like lexical traps um, that I think were mainly generated just you know by my love of Keats really. If we're being honest. And, what a wonderful and, thing to be able to say. Yeah. I mean, mine would be, oh, am I, am I too Gen Z? <laughs> Not like, am I too 19th century? Yes, my soul <laughs> had consumption in 1850. <laughs> you know, like. Well, I wanted to ask, being in London, I mean, California is year-round the most incredible produce in the entire world. And so you grew up eating like that. I'm sure cooking with all of that. Yeah, like what? I was just at the farmer's market the other day because Ari and I try to be really good and like do the majority of our shopping, not at a place Mm -hmm. like Whole Foods, whatever. But at a certain point, you're like, but there's nothing for me to eat anymore. I know. Like men cannot live on sweet potatoes alone. I'm sure you could, but it wouldn't be that enjoyable. I know. I always, I find actually, given that both New York and London are massive, like what, 12 million prison cities. It's alarming to me that there's mm-hmm. such a dearth of good places to shop for um, fresh produce. And I mean, the green market's fantastic during the summer and during the really productive time of year. But yeah, I was, I mean, I made dinner the other night and in New York and I was, I mean, I was like, I guess I'm making a root vegetable tagine. Right. Like that is the, uh, <laughs> that is all there is here. And yeah. like some, you know, nice, uh, greens that were hydroponic and that yeah. they just even those don't have as much flavor and they really you're really don't. battling some the growing season here situation is real um california <laughs> spoils you rotten yeah but you know i hadn't lived in california really since i was 18 that's true and then i lived in i lived in new york well after college and then i went to england directly um so i had figured out how to be more 
I mean, you just adapt to it, right? I mean, it's, yeah. but London is, London when I first moved um, in 2006 and Cambridge is fine, even worse. There was nothing. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's still like a place that's, I mean, it's kind of crazy. Those supermarkets all have packaged in plastic goods. Like there's, it drives me so crazy. most of everything is coming from Italy or Spain. Mm-hmm. Any fresh or like Portugal or stuff, right? Portugal. Just anywhere warm. Yeah. And also like Israel too. Um, I, the thing that was, I would always, I always tell myself, is like, if Italy is as close to London, kind of, as like Southern California is to Northern <laughs> California. I was like, right, I can rationalize that. It's like feeling so bad about the yeah. like miles on the food. Um, by the time I left London, there were some like reliable green markets, um, farmers markets that were yeah. sprinkled around. And there was one at, in Hampstead Heath quite close to my house that I would go to every week. You know, the thing is, like, it's a strange thing when you're dealing with um, these European countries who actually in many ways originated certain, like, you know, foods and varieties, and then they just lost touch with growing and growing in a small, ecologically diverse way. And then now they're, like, cottoning on again. And, like, so they're starting to have, like, heirloom tomatoes, but they're more for the diversity of beauty, and they haven't, like, dialed into the taste thing. Yeah. And that's happening especially in England. I mean, you go to Europe and you still find – my mom is always harping on this idea of, like, terroir. And if you have, you know, a pear – from the right place or the right grapes from this place or even, you know, a cheese too, where they've been making that same thing or growing the same thing for um, hundreds of years. Like it has that depth of flavor that is just indisputable. And that, and I was finding that the only things you really had that still within England were apples, you know, and certain varieties of potato and carrot and stuff. And that's one of the things Fergus Henderson was amazing at was Mm -hmm. like, consolidating his focus on the things that England had been growing and doing well for, for decades, centuries, you know, being like, this is the restaurant where you're actually going to eat rutabaga, like, Mm -hmm. and like it. You're going to love it. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I mean, I lived in St. Ives, which is a 12,000 person town in Cornwall for two years. And it's kind of the like fruit and fish basket. You can call it that. (laughs) Of like all of England. (laughs) Yeah, the fish basket, you know, that term we (laughs) all throw around. fish basket with me everywhere I go. (laughs) And um, yet you couldn't actually buy anything decent in town. It was, it's kind of a Sausalito-esque, like Disney fishing. I hate that. Like like, there was no one selling actual fish, like no one selling actual produce that was real. And there were a few supermarkets that were terrible and and then even like the one green grocery with stuff that was like laid out everything was imported he was a lovely man I knew him well Mm -hmm. I shopped there all the time because there was no there was really no work around right there are just places that are that kind of food desert you know and it's like I don't I honestly that two years was a strange sort of spartan time for decent food we had a hilarious dinner party when we left that place I was like I'm gonna cook everything in my pantry and it was like I was alone I had no friends I mean my I was my I was there with my partner at the time he was directing the Tate um that's in St. Ives there are three Tates there's like one in Liverpool well two actually in London and then one down in the southwest and it I don't know St. Ives is 
like seven hours by train from London. It's really remote. And there was wow. no one in town. It was just like, we sang a little song because they, like there were four people who we were friends with and we would all, always hang out just a different person's house. Or like a different, right. And the song was same people in a different place. Yeah. And it was like, and then it was like same people, different place. Yeah. yeah. And it was like, there was just no, yeah, there was, and we, they were lovely people. They mostly worked for Sam, my ex. And, that was like the right. extent of our social group. <laughs> I still threw as many dinner parties as I could just to like keep my spirits, you know, to buoy my buoy, spirits. Totally. But the dinner party we had when we left was everything that I had amassed. Like mo- mo- most things like I had bought online. It was like weird flowers to make like vegan donuts or like strange, God. like specialized things. It's like just past the time that I thought I would make sure. right. gluten-free pizza crust that I never touched or like, <laughs> right. you know, brown, so much brown rice. And so I made this dinner that was called, it was like the farewell dinner that was the brown dinner. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and every single thing. Brim. I mean, it was like, it was kind of hilarious. It was almost like a conceptual art piece. It was like brown rice salad, cornbread, like <laughs> these brown weird donuts that I thought I would make like two years before oh and never God. did. It was like, you know, pizza, weird pizza, polenta. So funny. Also, I feel like aesthetically reflective probably of like how you were feeling. How I was feeling <laughs> and like absolutely not how I normally cook. Yeah. Which right. most of my friends are like, come over just so they can like stave off scurvy you know they're like yeah. they know they'll get like a so citrus yeah. so yeah. many vitamins so how would you describe your own style of cooking it is like in the vein of Chez Panisse I mean yeah. I, Chez Panisse is known for um being a very vegetable forward menu and my vegetarian friends who live in uh, the Bay Area love it for that reason because like it, it's not like there's one vegetarian thing on the, on the menu it's like they can eat most things yeah. know, especially all the salads and there are always like six salads or something on the menu and then and it's because you can cook in this way that feels totally satiating that is still vegetarian plant-based Usually. so I mostly cook probably I rarely cook um, meat at home though a roast chicken is a cornerstone, mm-hmm. <laughs> a cornerstone of my repertoire. Um, but lots of salad. Yeah. Salad is my favorite food. Me too. <laughs> salad. I do have one follow-up question, though, to the London days. Uh-huh. It's so funny to me and makes so much sense that after living there and living in this dearth of, of produce, you go on to write My Pantry. Did you feel like you got so good at, you know, what you needed in your pantry to survive not having the produce. Like you were an it expert, was, basically. It is an adaptive. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's a good way. I mean, it is a good way to like, especially if you get your hands on something actually really fresh and delicious and you too much of it. And you know, like I would every week there was in season, which is to say like maybe a fourth of the year, there was one farmer at what was called a farmer's market in St. Ives. The, and I just called him the farmer at the market. Uh-huh. Um, and I would like buy more than I could possibly cook. And I would process some of those things. I like make, I would do canning and, you know, preserve like when there were decent tomatoes and stuff like that. It did help to think of, you know, my, how I was cooking in a more expansive way. But I also right. just cheated and bought unorganic stuff. Yeah. You know, I just did the thing that my mom, that would have made my mom miserable. Yeah. But sometimes there is no workaround. Like you said, I just, you gotta eat lettuce wherever it's from sometimes. (laughs) And this idea of preserving and canning and stuff, did you teach yourself all of that while you were there or had you already learned growing up? We didn't really can that much in California, you know? (laughs) We know California is amazing. No, but I mean like you really don't, I mean, if you have an enormous bumper crop of tomatoes like you might 
can some of those. And that's a really nice thing to do because you, then you have really great tomato sauce in the winter and stuff like that. But we didn't do a lot of it. We kind of, the, a lot of the recipes were sort of worked through and adopted, not so much by me um, as my mom with the, some of the cooks that she works with on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also, it was not the like Noma take on fermentation and canning. It's much more of a kind of like traditional yeah. approach, like quick pickles and yeah. um, and also just more almost like attitudinal like if Mm. you have these things in your dry pantry like you can make these quick it's about kind of thinking ahead to what thing what recipes can are born of really simple ingredients and and that also extends to maybe even trying to have you know a little pot of herbs and you know just always having good garlic around Mm -hmm. um but when you were in St. Ives, did you teach yourself those things? Oh, yeah, I did. And you just taught yourself. You had I mean, like... with books and stuff. Okay, yeah. But I mean, I would love to learn that. I started Fermentation, making a, I I started a, making a lot of very simple um, sauerkraut mm-hmm. with really good, like using lots of nice um, spices in there, like especially like fenugreek and things yeah. like that that just gave it a lot of flavor. You could not get any lacto-fermented anything certainly in maybe the entire region of Cornwall but also barely in London until the last like couple years when more chefs were using you know are using fermentation in their cuisine yeah I mean it was just like nowhere yeah yeah. I mean, now I feel like London is a great food city. Like, all of a well, sudden, it's sort of... the thing of... is, like, it always... Even when I first moved there, it had wonderful restaurants. Mm-hmm. It's more... You're seeing more restaurants there now that are taking cues from both Californian cuisine, but also, um, you know, the Noma, the kind of Northern European approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're seeing more of these, like, really good baking, um, finally. Jesus, yeah. like good bread. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I just like, could like care rocks. less about scones and stuff like that. But, <laughs> I, but like actually really great sort of um, wet sourdoughs that mm-hmm. have really great crumb and good crust and stuff, which just didn't exist at all when I first moved there. Yeah. Um, and then, um, and yeah, and pickles and things like that that are people have to fermented pickles. But they're just, it's still one of those things where it's like, there's the one person doing it. Yeah. Not the like, this is a pervasive part of culinary culture But I here. feel like in New York, I mean, a lot of this stuff actually kind of started, was revived in mm-hmm. Brooklyn, you know, totally. maybe in the early 2000s. Yeah. Where... People, I think, genuinely had no idea what the fuck they were doing, but they were just buying books and trying things Mm -hmm. and, you know, starting pickle companies or mustard companies or whatever. And then I think people started to actually catch on and learn that, like, they needed to to learn these things before they started. And now, I mean, Jesus, you can't throw a stone without hitting a... A kombucha. uh, Exactly. Fucking kombucha. (laughs) Oh, my God. I had an alcoholic kombucha the other night. I told this to Ari, but I had an alcoholic kombucha and, like... Did me in. Yeah, so I into it. I yeah, I had one and I had one of the worst hangovers. Oh, I, I was not expecting I thought was I was like, really well, I don't alcoholic. really want to drink, so I'll have a kombucha that has some alcohol and I was slurring my words by Can't the wait. end. Of Even it. when I have when he does a normal kombucha sometimes, I'm like, exactly. this has more booze in it than you're letting on. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is yeah, not like 0.05% well, or whatever. Well, there's those ones that you have to show an ID for that, like, are not. Yeah, bootcraft or yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't believe I just, just said that word out loud. Yeah. Ari and I feel like have both been trying to cook more vegetarian recently mm-hmm. for climate reasons. And I feel like I keep on running, running into the problem of 
at a certain point, all I want to cook is starch because I'm worried that other people won't like, I'm very happy to just have a salad and a great piece of cheese or, you know, like a salad and an omelet. But I feel like if you're having a dinner party, it's hard to expect people, especially men to be satiated from. I mean, I feel like maybe I just, it's my, that my friend group is all gay men who are perfectly <laughs> happy with that. Yeah. But I, <laughs> moving back to San Francisco changed the, uh, the, the sort of dynamics, the social makeup of my friend group yeah. <laughs> radically. Yes. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I think people are just so much more aware now mm-hmm. of, um, of what like the impact is of what we eat. And there just tends to be more receptivity, but I still will make like something hearty. Like I had 15 people over for dinner last Friday and I was like, I need to have a kind of substantive thing. So I made this like, you know, beautiful squashes and sweet mm-hmm. potatoes and Jerusalem artichokes and beets and kind of every, like a big tagine release. And I also, this is the other thing. And my mom and I both really, um, believe in this way of it just, with you use certain herbs and flavor enhancing ingredients and spices, you actually get a lot more impact with what you're making. So, mm-hmm. um, I almost always make a salsa verde, almost to the point that it's like Fanny's party trick is salsa yeah, verde. We yeah, we talk about this too. Yeah, and I and it's like <laughs> and it is that thing where, as long as you have salsa verde, everyone feels like they've had like they've had a steak yeah. or something. I'm like, I just feel like it totally does that thing, pushing people into this place of. Um, so simple. What do you so put into your salsa verde? I have many salsa verdes in my uh, my sleeve. Um, there's one. The kind of standard one is just um, cilantro and uh, and parsley and um, green onion and lots of garlic and lemon zest and um, usually a little green chili too and then olive oil and lemon juice. Yeah. Um, really simple pretty simple one but I so good now I'm just getting my, very hungry mm-hmm. I, my friend Heather who runs Botanica mm-hmm. in LA who's I a wonderful cook and someone whose palate and my palate are like just entwined yes and um, she made this um one that I just I like I wanted to take the jar of it and just guzzle it and now I make it's part of my repertoire too and it's it uses um fresh curry leaves okay um, and cilantro stems and all, um, and then toasted cumin and fresh uh, grated turmeric and obviously garlic, um, olive oil, little orange juice and zest mm. and um, lemon juice. And it's the recipe sort of loosely is in Always Home too. In fact, just many variations on salsa oh, verde. Cool. It's its own... I don't know if it's its own chapter, <laughs> I but I say, might yeah. as well have been. There, there were a few like moments in writing Always Home where I was like... I thought I was like I thought I was gonna definitely get away without just having a chapter dedicated to salad, and I was like, and that needs to just be its own thing. There were these right. like things were inserted sort of after the fact because mm-hmm. they were such. It was like I'd, I I don't know how I delighted them because they were in fact like the core thing, <laughs> like salsa verde salad. Um, but salsa verde is yeah one of the one of the things I feel like I can't live without in my life. And in always home, is it a memoir in that like does it? Is it linear or is it... Oh, well, you said it's sort of like more vignette. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like roughly chronological, but not not really. It's yeah. more of these scenes that um, situate you in a certain... Actually, more than space or time, kind of, I would say, a sense. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't looking at structuring it that way at all, except mm. for that I am overwhelmingly governed by like my sense of smell and taste. Mm-hmm. And so those are the things that 
more than anything of colored um, how I remember something or remember a sequence of things or an, or just an experience or feeling. So it's um, it's very it's really grounded in um, like sense memory. And so the stories are not necessarily narrative, although some very much are like funny yarns of traveling in France and like going to, you know, certain restaurants or, you know, ordering uh, me ordering a lobster salad at age 10 at a very fancy restaurant that we were being taken to by the, um, one of the heirs of the Krug champagne company after I had spent the entire car ride vomiting. And, uh, then was like, when I was asked what I wanted, my mom was about to be like, do you have a little bread? And I was like, a lobster salad. And she was like, I have made a monster. (laughs) Like who is that? And I remember that, like, you know, such a vivid memory that Fanny was a senior at Yale when I was a freshman, right? I think we overlapped for one year. Was that your first time really cooking on your own? Totally. Yeah. I hadn't had that much practice. And it was a funny thing of feeling like you have your taste is so established, you know what you like, and you're actually like weirdly unable to totally execute it. Yeah. And so, and it was a funny thing because of course people think, oh, you grew up cooking, like you must have cooked every day with your mom. And I was like... Yeah, it's like doing homework and a lot exactly. of soccer right. and she was a really competent cook so I just <laughs> didn't wasn't trying to interject that much and she was putting no pressure on me to do that you know right. I'd like to like follow in her footsteps or you know to help her out and be her assistant or like sous chef I often would dice a shallot for her or like help pound a clove of garlic and that's still kind of our dynamic in the kitchen um is like I'm more of like just helping her with the little things and she has this idea what she wants to make. Right. Um, and <laughs> I remember when I was home for a rather long stretch though one winter, this is like more recently, and I was um, eating like entirely vegan for this stretch for various reasons and she was just, just making her miserable. And I oh, <laughs> and even though she loves vegetables, it was like I was, you know, in that kind of like, I just want a grain bowl with like, you know, various kinds sure. of rows. And she was like, I just want a filet mignon. Like it was just like making her crazy. <laughs> it was so funny. Because she, it's like my way of eating is actually more like by the book healthy. Mm-hmm. Whereas like hers, it's, her way of eating is completely healthy. It's just a more like European approach right. to how what what that means. Like, which there's is nothing like, wrong with butter. Exactly. And, like, and we don't even use that much. But it's just not. There's not the same. Like, like you no. can't right. have these things. Like, you can't have bread. You can't have carbs. You can't. You know, it's just everything in moderation with her. Yeah. yeah. And and also like very little meat. Ultimately, it's just that right. she. The idea of having something that. I think she kind of almost more associates with like the hippie commune notion of health from like mm, the seventies right. that she was completely rebelling against mm-hmm. like that sixties era, like pile of brown rice with vegetables on it. Right. So when I, even if I'm making a quite beautiful array, she's like, oh, right. oh God, like, <laughs> like, well, it just like evokes painful memories. Like, sure. And then she's like, yes, it's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> But um, I don't know how we got onto that track, except for that. I was asking if that was when you first started cooking on your own. Oh, yeah. Like so, but, yeah. I, but when I was, like, a freshman, I would often call in to Shape Nice and, like, talk to the chefs about something if I didn't know how to make something. Like, oh, I remember wow. I was having the hardest time getting these, like, gnocchi to just hold together. Mm-hmm. They were a ricotta gnocchi recipe from the Zuni cookbook. This yes. is probably, like, made giving, last week. This is probably giving away some... Please tell because I need to know. Well, no, because that recipe, there's nothing better than the ricotta gnocchi that Zuni, that recipe was like, when you could execute it, right, it was delicious. 
It's a place and in San Francisco. Yeah, it's one of the and... just wonderful establishments. And Judy Rogers was one of the great cooks who came out of Chez Panisse, and she started Zuni, you know, ages ago now. Um, and her book, the Zuni Cafe Cookbook, is one of the greats. However, and I was, I will grant that I was using like subpar whatever bullshit ricotta I could find in New Haven. It was mm-hmm. not like the drier, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Artisanal ricotta. So you of want drier ricotta. You do that. need a dry. It's still need. You not a ricotta salata. Like you yeah. want a wet ricotta, like a fresh ricotta, but not one that's in those like yogurt containers that you peel the plastic oh, back well, 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 well. because they don't drain any of the the whey off of mm-hmm. them. They're just like a very damp ricotta and yeah. getting a yogi to hold together with that. Yeah. And I remember calling Kelsey, who's one of the great cooks, now has a wonderful, really wonderful cafe called Standard Fair in Berkeley. And she answered the kitchen line and I was like, Kelsey, Harold Bloom is coming over for dinner. <laughs> and I, which he was because he, Tom, my boyfriend then was his, um, research assistant and I'd been in two of Harold's seminars and it was like towards the end of my senior year and I was like and my gnocchi won't hold together they're just dissolving in the pot I should have provisioned for this earlier and she's like what are you doing tell me what you're doing and I was like Jesus. and I was like I did this this and she's like well first of all whisk another a- egg white and add that that will help like with mm. the cohesion and then she's like how much flour did you put in and I was like none I put in no flour the recipe doesn't have any and she's like what and she goes I cooked a zuni for years and our gnocchi always had flour in it so weird and I don't think it was ever proclaiming itself to be gluten free gnocchi on the menu but it just it wasn't in the, the recipe because right. I think the true like pure you know most authentic way of making a ricotta gnocchi is that you do omit flour and like huh. the flour is d- does however act as a very effective binder because it it soaks up some of the moisture anyways yeah. She saved the day. But it I used the Shapenese like kitchen line as my like personal hotline, much I'm sure to the chagrin of like every no, that is poor, like beleaguered cook who was like in the middle of service or like oh my God. Fanny on line one. <laughs> no, they probably felt so like, wow, I can school Alice Waters' daughter and like how to There was to lots of schooling. Like anytime I was in that kitchen, I got a lot I mean, but in the best in the best possible way. I mean, I, I mean it must be Alice's like way of being that created that environment. The I'm whole sure. restaurant was like predicated on a, a notion of communality mm-hmm. and shared values and it's the restaurant is still run by a board of directors yeah. and it was never I mean my mom has been the kind of the lodestar the um you know the figurehead but she's always shared the responsibility of what it means to you know run it not as a business but as a kind of almost community and, yeah. and for many years effectively nonprofit I think <laughs> I love she was on um, she was on how I built this and I think she's like the one person who's been on that podcast which was like she genuinely had no interest in actually building like a business you right. know and like it was a very different approach to um, creating a career yeah. and one that I I think is partially why the message has been so resonant is because it's just not cynical mm-hmm. yeah um, and I mean, none of her work is ever, there's never been the slightest sense of like cynicism or frankly, capitalism to right. the enterprise. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about permanent collection because that's my capitalist enterprise. No, no, no. I'm just so no, It's also in it. a nonprofit. It's so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> just not a 501c3. Oh my God. Um, it was started as, like, when I finished my PhD, I had this idea that um, 
I would do something kind of that was procreative that wasn't like purely, you know, writing based, especially because when I was living in Cornwall, I wasn't able to see that many shows and write about them. And I had like sort of relative paucity of culture that I could even report on. So Mm -hmm. my ability to do any of the freelance writing was pretty diminished. So Mariah Nielsen, my partner in Permanent Collection, is also from California, but was living in London, finishing up a degree in design when we met. Um, She and I became very good friends, like, instantly when we met in, I guess it was, like, 2012 now. Um, And we're like, what can we do together? She felt like my sister. I mean, Mariah grew up in a highly rarefied experience aesthetically and so had I but of a very different kind I think there was a sense of like shared DNA when we met Mm -hmm. and also because like in her home even though everything was like all the pottery was handmade and all the furniture was handmade nothing was like precious and the same thing was true of my mom's house like nothing was precious like you could use anything like there was not a glass that was only saved for special occasions Mm -hmm. or and a lot of the things were you know priceless in the sense that they were acquired 25 years before on a trip to Morocco and you could never replace it. And it was a beautiful, if completely cheap purchase at an antique, you know, flea market or whatever, but it wasn't, there wasn't a feeling of like a division between a kind of normal fabric of your life and then the, the things that would only come out, right. you know, the special linens the special or like yeah. the China. And I, you know, I, that, that, I think that Mariah and I both felt like really like the most pleasurable way to live was to live with beautiful things around you that you would use all the time. It was mm-hmm. like that kind of undergirded this um, this project. And also, I mean, it started because we're two girls who liked each other's clothes. We were like, let's make these like vintage pieces again. So it's it kind of started with clothing, but it was, again, it was like the pieces you would wear all the time. Like yeah. the really functional, perfect coat that we couldn't really find any version of in an any new version of we were right. like um and then same with um as we dabbled into, into more interior design type, type stuff or lifestyle and so like how is another find, irksome word yeah really how did you find yeah. we're gonna have a lifestyle blog how did you find <laughs> i think somebody did refer to us as a lifestyle podcast which is like oh god but what are you gonna do I'm an, that's yeah, just no, people think if you're a woman it. and you're interested in food I that know. it has something to do with lifestyle but so you guys had to find people who would make the clothes, make the pottery, all of that. I mean, artisans? Or artisans. Like, how did you I go mean, we about worked, doing we, that? We make the clothes. We worked with, with the clothing, we worked with a friend of ours who had worked a lot in sustainable fashion before. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, we make all the clothing still, all the, um, anything that requires cutting and sewing is made in Manhattan in the oh, garment cool. district. Um, and we do a pretty we're pretty committed to trying to work, you know, with sustainable fabrics, um, as much as possible. And it's kind of a funny thing with some products though. It's like organic wool. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's still ambiguous. And then there's a lot of things like organic or rather recycled fabrics that are actually like the provenance is pretty dicey. You know, there's a fact, there are factories. It's, I just learned this so harrowing, but like make plastic bottles right next to fat, textile mills that then just recycle the plastic bottles to like which have never even been used wow into textiles and that's a real thing that exists and it's why like so bad i know mariah and i are moving a little bit more away from clothing in part because it's one of the most difficult things to do in a highly sustainable way yeah it's like and in general the feeling is even though the ethos of the brand is like 
evergreen. You buy this once, you don't buy it again. Yeah. And it will last you for a very long time. It's still just the idea of pushing products of any kind. Same with the with objects, too. You encounter the ethics of, like, are we producing things that feel really necessary to people? And right. we don't necessarily want to encourage consumerism, but we do want to encourage mindful consumerism and yeah. having something that you really love as opposed to like 10 things that you kind of feel apathetic about. Um, but yeah, the, all the sourcing around the producers for other products is it's all artisanal producers, uh, many of them in California. But yeah, it's a Mariah largely oversees production. Um, and that is, it's a huge job, it's but it's also, it's so, it's so fun to get to that place. You know, when you, we think of what object we really want to make and then we find looking for the best person to execute it or the person who has a really soulful story or a connection to us in some way. So, yeah. and is it online only or do you guys have a, we're online there? only. Yeah. I just, with all the other work that we both do because yeah. she manages her father's estate and also curates and writes and I'm like a full-time writer on top of running permanent collection, we I don't think we could really do a brick and mortar. Yeah. When you threw a dinner party, because you were talking about like senses and atmosphere and creating a space that feels special in some mm -hmm. way, like how do you do that when you throw your dinner parties? Like what are the things that you always use or do? Um Aside from a salsa verde. Oh yeah, salsa verde is just, <laughs> we don't even we don't even need to discuss it. It's just it's de facto reality of every meal. Um I feel I find that the things I since get going back to California, I've been aggressively trying to create community there because it's mm. just something I I'm a people gatherer and I don't feel sort of grounded or sane without a sense of like I I know that I can get five to 15 people for dinner on a you know given night. And um, so when I, I just started making, I, having people over for, mm -hmm. for meals a lot when I first moved back and still, um, because it's, I, it is a strange rarity. I just, I, I kind of baffled, but not many people do that actually. Like you meet at restaurants and, so rare to get invited over to people's homes and it's i have like one the whole purpose of this podcast. yeah i know i mean yeah, but it's, it's crazy it's fucking magic yeah and i think people feel totally different when they leave a dinner party than they do leaving a restaurant it's yeah. like there's a real intimacy and there's something very like confidential between you because you're inviting someone into your home and you're mm. inviting them to see how you live um, and my apartment in San Francisco is not massive. I mean, my boyfriend had like a tiny, effectively coffee table. And I was like, what is this bullshit? I was <laughs> like, so even though we don't have a huge apartment, I, we immediately sourced a table that if pressed, I could seat eight. Mm -hmm. Still, that's, that's hardly large enough to accommodate like my dream, uh, dinner party situation. So, right. um, often either if my mom's out of town or not, because she loves to meet all my friends too. Mm -hmm. We'll have dinner parties at her place or like what's, what I really love doing is weekend lunches when the weather's nice. Cause we have, my mom's garden is beautiful and kind of almost as deep as the house is. So mm. it's, there's a stretch of kind of wildered lawn in the middle and its edges are all kind of feral and it's very green. Mm. And, um, the house of course, it's like set up. Essentially, you could cater for 40 out of that house. Right. There are these like God. tables downstairs, folding tables, and you bring those out into the garden and then lay them with any number of tablecloths. And just, I, I feel like having real things. Um, 
You mean like not disposable? Yeah, things? not disposable, like real things, but even chairs, like not having folding chairs, but actual wooden chairs, which yeah. have to be pulled from every corner of the house and the cottage in the back and the basement if right. we have 30 people. But having real wooden chairs, having, you know, silverware and napkins and beautiful glassware. And I collect glassware from all my travels. And so, and having a diversity of these things and the textures and colors, the way those things play off whatever you're serving. And my mom, of course, has a wonderful collection of these things. So it makes having a dinner party really um, special and easy. I do think that so few people have that experience, even in their own homes, Mm -hmm. of just really using beautiful things and like having flowers on the table. And and I do like, and this is maybe where I differ from my mom a little bit because she'll just it'll be like a risotto and a beautiful salad. I'm like five kinds of salads yeah, and like, yeah. you know, a little bit more of the Otolenghi kind of like vibe. Right. And, you know, right. and I, and there's, and the dinner, the like lunches outside either on tablecloths or even at tables in the garden, I think are kind of the most special way of entertaining. And it's, and because it's not like, there's no preciousness about it and it's not fancy, Yeah, it's but it's really just good beautiful yeah, and gorgeous. tasty. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Um, I will tell you what my favorite dinner party is. Or, it's not quite, it wasn't a, it wasn't at a person's home, but Doesn't it kind matter. of, it was at a restaurant, but it was at, um, it was at Le Milly, which is oh my God. one of those like vaunted French restaurants that. And it's also been panned in certain places and I don't understand why. I, this meal was, I mean, I feel like I almost shouldn't, like I should come up with something humbler than this, except for that the. Let me, I don't even know when it was founded, but it's like one of the most old school French restaurants, like wooded interior and all of the food is still made on, um, iron stoves that are wood burning. It's off the charts, but it's a place out of time. This was Johnny Apple's 70th birthday. And he was at the time, I actually don't think he was, I think he and his wife, Betsy were living in DC at the time, but he'd been the bureau chief in Paris and he'd been the bureau chief in London. Like, you know, he was a legendary journalist and in his later years had become like a true food writer and just obsessive um, gourmand. And he had this party at La Milouie where, of course, they knew him and loved him there. Mm-hmm. And it was the whole restaurant. And it was, and I was maybe, I was easily, I think, the youngest person there. And I had no real uh, claim to being there. Like, I had tagged along with my mom. That's but so I awesome. just, like, I just remember the generosity of the portions, which were not generous. I mean, they were in sort of over the top, you know, you get stacks of baguette all perfectly warm in an almost Jenga tower. And then (laughs) alongside it, these just Dutch Renaissance worthy, like slabs of foie gras, you know, these like, they just looked and the whole place had what struck me so much because I don't, it's not that I remember the meal, you know, exact, each right. exact food, but that the that the way that room felt with so many people who adored this unbelievably charismatic man, um, and whom he adored, and so such looseness with the pouring of libations mm-hmm. and this these towers of foie gras, and then the coquille Saint Jacques that came out on platters, and just feeling like the whole place was lit by candles, yeah, and. Um, and then this like tropical fruit cart that comes out that feels worthy of like a Captain mm-hmm. Cook voyage where you're like, where they've brought every one of the treasures of like the new world back. God. It was the day before, I think, or like a few days before Thanksgiving. And it was better than any Thanksgiving, oh. you know, you could ever have. 
And Johnny is so missed. I mean, he's just he's one of like the mythological creatures in the world of food and journalism, wow. which I realize now, as I'm saying that out loud, kind of does knit together like my the two sort of strands of like writing, oh, yeah, yeah. writing and and just and and living beautifully, living well, loving food. Yeah. Wow, you really wrapped this whole interview up in like the perfect go. Thank you. Yeah, really. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, this thank you so much for having me. Tremendous. What a so treat. Tremendous. So thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you to Fanny for coming on, to Colin Schmeling, our wonderful editor, without whom we would not even have a podcast. <laughs> Rebecca Cobert, our producer, at large, and go out there and throw yourself a big old garden party. Yeah. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.